Great. Um, welcome everyone to another Skype a Scientist live stream. I'm Maddie, the Skype a Scientist intern, and today we have uh, Peter Sore. Sorry. <laughs> um, and we're going to be talking about pollinators, and he's doing his PhD in um, biology at University of Ottawa, so I'm excited to hear about that. And we also have Aaron, as usual, uh, doing our translating for us. So thanks, Aaron, again, for being here. But yeah, thanks, Peter, for being here. Thank you for the invite. I'm like, I'm super pumped to, uh, to answer some questions and, uh, and have a great time. Awesome. Um, yeah, so if you wouldn't mind uh, giving us a little background about uh, how you got to where you are and like a little bit about the science that you do. Sure, yeah. I'm, so I'm a PhD student in biology at the University of Ottawa, and I mostly study the impacts of pollinators uh, or the impacts of climate change and habitat loss on pollinators, especially um, bumblebees and butterflies, which I think are absolutely amazing um, and so beautiful. Um, I actually started out, um, I've always like really loved nature, but when I started my undergrad, um, I started in like a biomedical program and I was like really pumped to be like a medical doctor. And then I like really didn't enjoy the courses as much. And in my second year, I took an ecology course and it was just like mind blown. I was like, oh my God, this is what I need to do. I really like love this stuff. Um, so from then on, I like kind of switched in and uh, I've never regretted it uh, since, so. That's awesome. I feel like I've heard that um, a decent amount where people will start in kind of the medical, because that's kind of like, oh, you like science, you should go medical. And then there's so much more to science than that. Yeah, yeah, I think that was very much what I was in. Like, I like didn't even realize there were like other science things other than like being a medical doctor or like, an engineer. Um, so it was like just kind of the default red that I was like pushed towards, but I'm happy I found uh, an outside or another another path that I could take. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, your work that you're doing with pollinators? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I, I'm a what we call a macroecologist. So I like look at ecology and kind of the interactions between animals and their environment. Um, and I look at it at big scales. Um, and I also think of myself as a conservation biologist, so I'm really interested in um, what are the threats facing a lot of the wildlife across the globe and how can we stop those threats and help wildlife to manage them better um, or stop humans from, or figure out ways that humans can do things without um, impacting animals like that. So a lot of the work that I do uses like really big data sets um, of like, observations that people have collected of bumblebees or butterflies for you know hundreds of, or, or decades tens or hundreds of years and then i look at kind of where these animals were in the past where they are now where they might go in the future um, and i look at how this relates to things like climate change or things like habitat loss or um, agricultural expansion things like farming and stuff or pesticides um, and i try to build links in between these like changes in species and and numbers of, of animals and, and things like climate change. And then we can build tools to predict where impacts are gonna be greatest and where things are going really well and learn lessons from that. Um, yeah. Very cool. Um, and I guess I, I have a little bit of a question. Um, I'm, I'm familiar with the kind of like butterflies and bumblebees and stuff like that in the Ottawa area. Is there like a specific species that you like working with a lot or is it kind of just in general those types of organisms? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I, 
So when I like started in kind of biology and looking at like what kind of research I could do, I always like hated having to choose like a favorite animal or like one study animal. So I kind of cheated and now in the research I do, I get to look at them all. Um, so we look at like um, almost 70 different species of bumblebees and um, you know, hundreds different, of different kinds of butterflies across North America and Europe. Um, and we, yeah, so we look at like big trends across all of these different species and then we can like build these like general principles and rules of like how different um, changes influence these animals. Very cool. Yeah, that's awesome. I always um, forget how many, there's so many bumblebee species. Like, yeah. It's insane. <laughs> it's crazy, um, yeah. So another, oh, let me see. We just got a question in. Um, they're asking, so yeah, they're asking like, so types of pollinators, I guess normally what we think about are like the terrestrial. Would there ever, I don't even know as a marine biologist, are there marine pollinators? Like things that would be classified as pollinators, but not on land? Oh man, that's a great <laughs> question. Um, I think so like the goal of pollinators is to transfer like pollen from like flowering plants to other flowering plants of the same species. And I don't know if there are any like, obviously there are flowering plants like lilies and stuff that like float in the water. Um, and so maybe like turtles or something might like, while they're eating the flowers transfer pollen, I don't know. Um, I guess I don't know the answer to that question, but that's really cool. Yeah, I don't know either, but I guess, yeah, you're probably right, is that because water can kind of just move whatever a pollinator would really need to move yeah. Now we don't need underwater bees. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, we have another question about uh, bumblebees specifically. Uh, do you know, a, like, about how long a bumblebee lives? Um, yeah. Yeah, that's another great question. And bumblebees are usually they only well they only live for like one year um, mm -hmm. or less. Um, and it's really different from like honeybees are like one type of bee that people are like usually really familiar with because they have like the hives that some people have in their backyards and stuff and bumblebee queens can live for like a really or honeybee queens can live for like a really long time because they like survive the winter in their hives mm -hmm. but for bumblebees they only ever live like one year and so the queens like um get born at the end of the summer and then they'll like mate with a male and then they'll like find like a little hibernation spot kind of like bears and they'll like hibernate for the whole winter and then in the spring the queens like come out and they'll like get some flowers, some pollen, some nectar, um, and then they'll start their nest. And so their whole nest, all these worker bees in the colony, the colonies are pretty small, like tens or like maybe a dozen or, you know, maybe a hundred individuals. Um, and then the bumblebee nest kind of like does its thing for the summer. And then in the winter or in the fall, it makes new queens. And then the whole nest um, and the old queen um, just kind of dies. <clears throat> and so they only live like a maximum of one year. Gotcha. Um, and then <clears throat> kind of jumping off of some more bumblebee uh, fast facts, if, you, if you're into it. Um, what do bumblebees like kind of typically eat? And I guess like, do all bees eat very similar things or is there like a very, a big variation in diet? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so all bees or like bumblebees pretty much all eat, um, you know, pollen and nectar. Um, and so the, they don't, they don't make honey like honeybees because like they eat the nectar really quickly. They don't have to like last the whole winter and their colonies are pretty small. Um, so they just make these little like honey or nectar pots in their, 
in their hives. Um, and they just like fill it with like nectar from flowers and then they eat that um, and give that to the larvae. Um, and so they mostly just eat those two things like, um, you know, nectar and pollen. Um, and they mostly all eat the same thing, but some bumblebees will like specialize on like particular flowers. Um, and, and so they end up kind of like separating from each other in that way sometimes. Um, and in particular, there are like two kind of like groups of bumblebees. There are like bumblebees with short tongues and then some bumblebees with longer tongues. Um, and then that kind of determines like what flowers they're gonna feed from. If the flower has like a really long corolla, like the flower is kind of like a tube shape, then, um, you know, shorter tongue bumblebees can't like reach all the way. Um, and, uh, and longer tongue bumblebees will, will be able to like eat from that. Um, and then there are some bumblebees that actually like don't even go search for their own pollen. These bumblebees are like what we call cuckoo bumblebees. And they're so like devious and so cool because they just like insert themselves. They like go into a nest. The queen cuckoo bumblebee will go into like another nest of another bumblebee and they'll like kill the queen from that nest. And then they'll pretend to be the queen from that nest. And then all of the worker bees will just like think that this is the old queen and they'll like feed it and like feed its babies. Um, and it just like completely parasitizes this other nest. So it's kind of a neat and devious way. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Where is that? Um, I have not heard of that type of bumblebee before. Are they like pretty common or? They're like, they're really rare to see because the only time you'll see them is when they're like searching for like a nest to like steal from and parasitize. Um, and so they're like really difficult to see, but they're like every, like not everywhere, but they're found across like North America and across Europe and, uh, and kind of Asia in that area. Hmm, very cool. Um, so going back to more of the kind of climate change stuff you were talking about, um, what are, so like, what are some of the major factors of climate change that you're seeing that are like currently impacting um, bumblebees and butterflies? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so the big things that we're seeing, so one of the, you know, kind of the biggest thing people know about climate change is that it like kind of warms the earth. Um, and so especially in places like Canada, which are like at more northern latitudes, um, temperatures are like changing pretty rapidly. Um, and so things like this are making like in the southern parts of where bumblebees live where it's already like pretty hot these places are getting like just a little bit hotter but it's like enough to push them over the edge and then at northern parts it's like places that were too cold for bumblebees these are like sometimes making them warmer that they can move into and especially for butterflies we see a lot of butterflies being able to like move into new areas and expand their ranges because things are a little warmer um, but the other thing about climate change or one of the other things about climate change is that it makes extreme events become a lot more frequent and more extreme. And so things like if you're in California, like wildfires are becoming a lot more common and a lot worse. Um, and droughts are becoming a lot more, uh, a lot more common and a lot worse. Um, heat waves are, you know, also becoming even hotter and lasting longer. And so a lot of these like extreme events end up um, impacting bees a lot. And that's what I study specifically is kind of how climate change makes new environments that are much hotter for shorter periods of the time, but like much more extreme for bees. Um, and that ends up having a really big impact on these populations. Gotcha. Yeah. So you're seeing, you're seeing them kind of start to move northward and almost like lose their uh, usual uh, habitat areas. Yeah. It's so for butterflies, that's what we see a lot is that it's kind of like, if you picture they used to live kind of in a space here 
um, as things get warmer, they kind of like shift their uh, where they live like further up. Um, and that's the ideal scenario. Like mm -hmm. ideally species are able to like track climate change and move with it. Um, but for bumblebees, that's not what we see. Instead, we see like for some reason they're not able to move further north into these new areas. And so the bottom part of their range just kind of collapses upward and it just kind of shrinks like that. Um, and so unfortunately, for some reason, bumblebees aren't able to like move further north, but that's something we can look at to see, you know, why is that? Can we do something about that? And hopefully we can help them track climate change as it goes on. Yeah, no, that's, um, that's like a really complicated problem to try to figure out. Um, and we have a question asking about like specific types of plants that maybe bumblebees like. And I wonder if that kind of has a little bit to do with like how far they're able to um, expand. But yeah, we have a specific question. What's a really helpful flower that bumblebees might like? Oh, that's a good question. Um, one of like one really good flower for bumblebees and not only bumblebees, but also, you know, butterflies and other wild pollinators is actually goldenrod. Um, and so this is a plant that is actually, I think it's like really gorgeous. It has all these like really little flowers all over it, really little yellow flowers. And it kind of has these like swooping, like um, almost like brushes kind of um, in the summer. And so it's really nice plant, um, but you know, it's kind of like weedy. It grows like all over the place and um, people think that it causes allergies and stuff. So often they'll like remove it from their yard or their garden. Um, but it's actually a really great plant for pollinators because there's so much kind of little nectar and, and pollen in this little flowers. Um, so that's one plant that if it grows near you, if it's like a local plant around you, um, then it's a great plant to, uh, to let grow in your garden or to leave in your lawn um, to help the bees. Um, <clears throat> and then another question kind of pertaining to bumblebees and like, um, kind of, I guess maybe talk a little bit more about the important role that they play in like local and global ecosystems. Um, and like why, yeah, why is it really important that as they're losing habitat, we work to try to help them stay afloat? Yeah, that's a great question. And, um, and you know, I think there are two big reasons that I like, like to point out. And one of which is that, especially for like bumblebees, but also obviously for bees. Uh, and and butterflies they're just the cutest animals ever like you can't hate a bumblebee they're so like floofy and kind of like buzzing around and like you know they look kind of like buffoons a little bit but they're like these little teddy bears of the sky like I think that's enough reason to like want to to help them do better um, and the other reason is that they're like super super useful for us as as humans um, and because like bumblebees in particular like pollinate a lot of like crops that we eat things like tomatoes and things like nuts and veggies and fruits um bumblebees pollinate those so without wild bumblebees um you know we would have like spaghetti but like no tomato sauce on it so it would be like we'd have a lot of yeah <laughs> we'd have a lot of boring meals and you know no pizza and you know no pumpkins in the fall and, uh, it would be um it would not be as nice of a world i think um, and other wild pollinators. Um, yeah, no, I agree. We need, we need them. They're cute and soft and fuzzy, but also like extremely important. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so we have a question at kind of asking about, um, like being, so this, so someone mentioned that their son's a budding entomologist, which is awesome. 
uh, and they kind of want to know some advice that like maybe can help foster their interest. So I'm interested in hearing you mentioned like kind of liking biology and then realizing ecology was a kind of field that you could go into. Like, did you have specific sciencey stuff you liked as a kid? Um, and maybe like what we can tell other people that they could go do now? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, first of all, like shout out all budiness knowledgeists. That's awesome. Um, and second of all, you're super lucky because it's like easier than ever to kind of get into these things more and more. Um, and one of the big things that makes it like really easy to to start to see bugs more and, and kind of get out and know them more is apps like iNaturalist and other like citizen science or community science um, programs. Um, so iNaturalist is like a superb like app that you can download on your phone. And like when you see a really cool bug, it doesn't matter what it is or when you see the flower that it's on, you can just like snap a picture with your phone and then you can upload it to this website or this app. And even if you don't know what it is on there, um, someone else can tell you what it is and it kind of has like a computer that will like suggest like oh this looks like it's a monarch butterfly or this looks like it's a, um, a common eastern bumblebee um, and so you can start to learn bugs better and I think that's like the biggest thing that helped me was like the more that I go out to like look for butterflies and 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 bees and like other insects the more you kind of like it's almost like pulling like as if you were living with like a sheet over your eyes like once you start looking for these things, it just like the sheet like pulls off and all of a sudden you see like everywhere, every bush has like, you know, dozens of like little bugs on it from like ants to like these little metallic sweat bees to like bumblebees to honeybees to like, you know, little beetles and spiders. And so it's really like, you know, now I can spend like hours just like staring at like one bush and it's like terrible when you're trying to go somewhere, but it's like so awesome when you're just like appreciating nature in that sort of way. So I definitely recommend like checking out like iNaturalist and just like going outside and like staring at a bush for like 10 minutes and see what you see. Oh, that's awesome. Um, I agree. iNaturalist is amazing. And that's like how I actually like you can use iNaturalist to find like species ranges, which I think is really helpful if you're like yeah. looking for something and you're going to go like, drive and look for it. Uh, and yeah, you're right. Yeah. Attention, like once you realize how many critters are in that like tiny little bush or like in this like plant, it's hard to not see them again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Even like yesterday or Monday I was out and I was just like, I kind of stopped. I was just like on a walk and I just stopped. And like I looked at this plant and there was like nothing on it. And I was like, oh, this is disappointing. And then I waited like 30 more seconds and all of a sudden I saw one. And it was like this one like little fly kind of flying around and I was like, oh, that's cool. And then all of a sudden like another, like a little bee and like this wasp came out and this butterfly and this like bumblebee. It was like, it's crazy. Like, yeah. 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 So everyone should go like check out their uh, nearby outdoor plants and see what's kind of hanging out on that. Yeah. Um, a question. So kind of going back to, so people are asking some questions about um, bee colonies because you're talking about how like bumblebees will kind of just last for a year. Um, they're asking about, I'm going to try to combine a couple of these, uh, like colony collapse disorder and kind of how, so maybe we can try to put together like how do colonies start and then kind of what is colony collapse disorder and how does that kind of play into um, bumblebees and how they're doing? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's, um, so the, yeah, that's a great question. And I'll start by first saying that 
um, colony collapse disorder is like really only thing for like honeybee hives actually. Um, so there are like two, so honeybees are like, you know, a really common type of bee to see around and like people are really familiar with them because they love like honey from honeybees and they're super useful in agricultural fields and stuff. Um, but honeybees are actually like, originally they're from Europe and we like brought them over into North America. Um, and now they're basically like cows or like sheep because we like keep them in these hives. They don't do super well outside of the hives. Um, so they're really great. I love honeybees as well. I love honey. Um, but they're really not like, they're not a wild bee. Um, and actually they can have like negative impacts on wild bees sometimes, but that's another story. Um, and so colony collapse disorder is like this phenomenon that happens when honeybee hives, um, usually I think the leading theory is that when they end up having a lot of different stressors on them, whether it's like, it's really hot and it's really dry or there's some pesticides around or like, you know, different kinds of stressors. Um, then these like honeybee hives of like thousands of bees end up, you know, collapsing. And so they'll like lose the queen and they'll like start to lose all their individuals. Um, and that's obviously really bad. But the good thing is that because these are like cows and sheep, you can just get a new hive and like, you know, you'll be okay. Um, when it comes to like uh, wild bees, like bumblebees or other like, you know, sweat bees or minor bees or other things, um, then these bees have like actually really small colonies compared to honeybees. So honeybees have hives of like thousands or tens of thousands of individuals um, and bumblebees are like the next most social group and their honey their colonies are like maybe a hundred or maybe like 200 individuals. So they're really small and they don't last like the winter and so like the whole colony is going to die at the end of the year anyway. Um, so things like colony collapse disorder don't really come into play for these wild bees but the thing is that um, the colonies and these like populations of bees are really sensitive because every springtime the queens need to start a whole new nest um, and start a whole new colony and that's like a really vulnerable period because if there's like you know if the queen dies because it's like you know there's a, a late spring frost or something and it gets too cold then the queen can die if there's not enough resources then the queen can die or if the queen is just like unlucky and it like floods or something then you know that whole early nest will die um, so Bumblebees end up being a lot more vulnerable because they have to start their whole nest every year and the same for a lot of other bees. Um, whereas honeybees can like, you know, last the whole winter and they can last for like up to 10 or 13 years, I think, um, in their in their hive. Gotcha. Yeah, so it's so it's just to clarify, it's only one queen, one like bumblebee queen per hive. Yeah, per yeah, year. sorry. Okay. Yeah, one queen per year. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, yeah, that makes yeah, if there's any like slightly longer winter, then it sounds like the bumblebees are just not too happy. Yeah, yeah. Or the other thing that we're seeing is like, again, with these extremes, like it's not just extremes in the summer that impact bumblebees, it's like extremes in the springtime as well. So if you have like a heat wave in, you know, February or something, and it all of a sudden gets like uh, the snow melts and like, you know, you start to get a couple early springtime flowers come up because they think it's spring, um, then like these can wake up too. Um, and they don't realize it's like still literally the middle of the winter. And so like the heat wave will end and then like snow will come back and it'll start to frost again. And all of these bees have been like tricked out of their hibernation. Yeah. So <laughs> that's not so good. Um, and then I guess we'll talk a little bit more about the climate change stuff and then uh, jump over. But people, someone's asking about um, specifically in Ontario, are those uh, wild bees under threat? And I guess to kind of broaden that, like are basically like it are most wild bees under threat 
due to climate change and honeybees and like what other kind of stressors are there that are causing yeah. that as well? Yeah, super question again. Um, so the, yeah, the short answer is that yes, um, most bees and unfortunately most animals are you know under threat in some way or another, but bees particularly, wild bees are under threat. I think, you know, the big things if I had to list them off would be, um, you know, habitat loss, first of all, um, and then climate change, and then things like pesticides, um, and then things like honeybees and disease and parasites and other things. Um, and so it gets, it gets really difficult, you know, um, to kind of address those like in order, um, you know, habitat loss, we always need to build like new houses or like, you know, new farms to like be able to feed people. And so this takes away from like, the natural meadows and you know the natural forests and stuff that these wild bees live in um, and then climate change is heating things up when you start to add in you know pesticides kind of going into the surrounding environments and you know obviously killing insects uh, like they're meant to do but killing the wrong insects unfortunately um, then you know it just adds on to all these threats things like honeybees are like taking resources away from these wild bees um, and so that just like adds another thing on to onto the different threats that these wild bees are facing. Um, and so unfortunately in, in Ontario and in Canada, a lot of these wild bees um, are under threat and are declining because of all these like combined factors. Gotcha, yeah. yeah. Um, but there are, yeah, sorry, but there are still a lot of things that we can do to like help them. It's not all doom and gloom. There's like a lot of like, you know, great initiatives that different organizations and even different cities are doing to, to help their wild bees and to support their wild bee populations and a lot of things that you can do at home as well to, to help those wild bees. Yeah, like um, I guess besides the tip of maybe planting plants that the bumblebees would like, do you have any other kind of tips that people can do to help the native bee population? Yeah, yeah. So first of all, yeah, planting plants that bees like and planting local plants that bees like. Um, so look around at like what's what grows in like your region um, you know, talk to like a conservation authority or like, you know, a plant shop or something and figure out like what are the, the native plants in your region and grow those because that's what like the wild bees will be used to. That's what like the wild butterflies will be used to. If you start to plant more of these wild plants, you'll get like more hummingbirds, more pollinators like in general. So it's like a really great um, across the board. Um, the other thing that you can do is like leave a little bit of like natural habitat in your gardens or like you know pick a corner of your garden and let like the grass grow and like you know let it get long leave some of the the leaves on the ground from the autumn because this is like really great for like bees that want to like um overwinter sometimes they'll like you know burrow into these leaves or if they're looking for nests sometimes they'll like use that and stuff um so just like be a little lazy with your garden i guess is like you know a really great thing if there's a log that falls down just like leave it on the ground maybe in one section um, and a lot of like wild animals and, and wild pollinators can use those as habitat or shelter for like extreme events and stuff. Yeah. And then someone's asking about um, that they've seen some small beehives that you can get that they have like kind of like a clear side so that people can look inside. Is that like a good idea or should you kind of look for more um, enclosed habitats that make the animal feel safer? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I guess I'm like, um, I guess I'm a little split. I think on one hand, it's like really great. I like always am a fan of things where you can like see what's going on and like interact with nature and get like a more personal, you know, kind of view of it. I think that's awesome. Like I would love to be able to see like a whole bee kind of colony going behind the glass. I think that would be great. Um, and I guess the only thing to consider is that, um, 
you know, you don't want to be like removing the glass. All the, I don't know if it like removes or whatever, but you want to kind of let the colony do its own thing as well, right? Um, because at the end of the day, these are bees and they can still sting you if you're like, if they think you're threatening them. They're, bumblebees are really gentle and, um, you know, super like unlikely to sting you, but, you know, you kind of want to give them their space so they can both do their own thing and not get stressed out. Um, and also, so you don't get, you know, um, stung or anything. So there's kind of, there's two sides to it. And the other thing to think of is like, for a lot of these nests where you're kind of, you're putting out a nest, whether it's um, um, this one for like, I guess for your colonies or whether it's those little, you can get little kind of like tube nests for solitary bees and put those out. Um, and the only thing to remember is that um, it's really important to kind of clean these out at the end of every year or at the start of the year. Um, so just make sure you're looking up like what are the best practices because you don't want to end up like putting out a nest that's going to be full of parasites or you know help the bees catch the bees and stuff. So, mm -hmm. so I think those are really great, especially if you want to get like a up close and personal view of nature. Um, just make sure you're doing a little bit of research to look at how you can best do that um, for the bees. Yeah. Um, and talking about the, the bee stings, we have a couple questions because I'm assuming people have gotten stung by bees. Um, they're asked, so we're, people are asking kind of what causes, it sounds like if bees are just a little upset, if you're too close to them or close to their home, that's what will cause them to sting you. Um, but I guess, I don't know if you, um, this is your wheelhouse for research, but like when they sting you, what, what's kind of causing that allergic reaction? And like, does every no? Does everyone lose their life after they sting you, or do they still survive? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question, um, and a, you know, a pretty common one. Um, it's not super my area of research, but I've obviously been stung a few times, unfortunately. So um, I guess I have a little personal experience. But um, but yeah, so bees like um, bees are in general like really gentle. They don't want to sting you because it like honeybees you know, they die every time they sting you. Um, and so obviously they're not trying to die, um, but they are trying to protect their nests. So if they think they need to sting you, if they think you're gonna be a threat to their nest and their queen, then any bee will sting you. Um, but, you know, kind of the trick is that, you know, you just don't want them to perceive you as a threat. So similar, in a similar way to like, when you see a wild animal, you don't wanna get like, you know, all up in its face. You don't wanna be picking up like wild raccoons or possums or anything, you know? You kind of want to give them their space um, and the same for bees so if you're if you're being gentle if you're being kind of slow and like you know you can get right up to bees um, especially bumblebees which are like just super gentle you can get like right up to them as long as you're being like really slow and really kind of calm don't make like threat you know wild movements or you know swat them out of the air or anything um, and in general they'll just kind of let you be and leave you alone um, I guess so regarding like whether they die when they sting you. So honeybees do, whenever a honeybee stings you, it kind of tears its stinger out of its own body. And so it's kind of like a last ditch attempt to save the hive. But pretty much every other bee, I think, can like sting you multiple times if they want. Um, so wasps can sting you like multiple times. Bumblebees uh, can sting you multiple times if they want um, because their stinger doesn't get ripped out of its body. It just kind of like exits its body, stings you, and then goes back in, kind of like a, like a snake bite almost. Um, so they can do that multiple times. Obviously, hopefully you get the message the first time and you won't stick around for a second one, but um, if they want to, they can do that. Yeah, true. You're As long as you're not like pouring water near their home or trying to catch them, usually I feel like they're pretty nice. Yeah. Um, and yeah. someone's asking about, so I thought this was kind of a fun question. Why are bumblebees called bumblebees? <laughs> um, 
And yeah, that's, what's your opinion on that? I don't, I don't <laughs> know, but. Yeah, that's a superb question. And I guess I have some like myths and like my own thoughts, but I don't know for sure the answer. Um, so the first answer that I think is because they're like just bumbling around. If you watch them fly, they're like really kind of like clumsy. They're just like, you know, they're so loud and so big. So it looks like they're just kind of like bumbling around. I don't know. They're like, you know, kind of uncoordinated almost in how they fly. Um, so I think that might have to do with it. The other thing that I've heard that I've read before is that it used to be humblebees. And some people still call them that in some parts of the world, humblebees. Um, but I don't know why that is. Maybe they look more, I don't know, maybe other bees look more like braggadocio or they look like they're uh, flexing for no reason. I don't know, but. Um, they look like nicer yeah. bees, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess maybe they have the, they have all that fur, so they look dressed up, I don't know. Oh, that's awesome. I, the bumble part, I, that kind of, I've never heard humblebees, so that's fun. Everyone should go out and Google when they switch that name, because I've never heard of that before. Yeah, yeah. Um, so switching back to a little bit more about you, um, someone's asking about, like, yeah, did you know that you really liked science as a kid? Um, and kind of, and then jumping really far forward, what's your kind of dream job after you finish your PhD? Because I know you mentioned you're, you're in your last year of your PhD and kind of looking at um, different job options right now. Yeah, great questions both, yeah. So I guess when I was a kid, I always loved, um, I always loved nature. Um, we like went camping a lot when I was younger to Algonquin Park. Um, and we would spend like, you know, three weeks car camping at a time in Algonquin Park. We were out there for like really long amounts of time. And so it was great to be able to like be outside and see like, you know, really get a feel for like nature and um, and kind of things going on outside. Um, and even when I wasn't like, I grew up in Northern Ontario as well. So like when I was a kid playing around, I was always outside. Um, but, you know, even when I was inside, I was like reading old National Geographic magazines. And like, we used to have these like little, um, they were like stat sheets for different animals. And so you would, I would just like memorize like, how big, you know, Nile crocodiles were and how long they could get and what was their like pound and like how, how uh, hard could they bite and stuff. Um, so I was always really into it, but as I kind of like went to high school and stuff, it like got pushed aside a little bit. We'd still go camping and stuff, but um, I guess I didn't realize that, you know, ecology was a position that you could do. And, um, but then all of a sudden I did, you know, I like took those like ecology courses and, um, you know, Kind of woke back up that passion inside um and then i got really excited about um you know seeing all of these really wild animals and, and really wild places um and when i realized they were under threat from things like climate change and habitat loss um i got really kind of dead set on trying to save them um, and so that's why i like i'm really uh why i consider myself a conservation biologist and why a lot of my research focuses on not just documenting how badly everything is going for animals but trying to like figure out ways to make things better um and how to protect them better and and change our human actions to to help them out um and that's what i'd like to do in the future so i um i really enjoy research i love it but i'd like to work in more kind of applied conservation and doing things on the ground and you know managing and, and setting up conservation actions to help animals like where they are um, kind of taking that research and synthesizing it and, and putting it into a, an actual plan of action that we can do and, um, and an approach that we can take. Very cool. 
Yeah, so um, just to clarify to everybody here, it's kind of like as you finish your PhD, you can kind of go a lot of different directions. Um, and yeah, like as uh, Peter mentioned, you could go more research or kind of go into that applied piece, which it sounds really cool, like applied, you would be, it's more like action on the ground, as you said. Um, do you think you'll work with like insects still or are you looking for a broader conservation impact? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and one that I don't know the answer to. I love insects. I love like, um, I find they're so underappreciated and, and overlooked. And so I really like being able to like shine a light right now on like what's going on with insects and, and being able to like, you know, just get hyped about how amazing they are. Um, and so I really like that. But I also love like, you know, I love birds. I love reptiles. I love mammals. And, um, so I like, you know, I could go broader um, or um, or stay on insects as well. I guess I'm more, that'll depend kind of what jobs are available and stuff, but um, yeah. Cool. Yeah, I was just curious because, yeah, it's, there's so much you could do um, for conservation. Yeah. No, it's so exciting. Like there are so many, well, exciting on one hand because like it's so cool to be able to like go to really cool places and like mm -hmm. try to make things better. Um, but on the other hand, like, you know, I hope one day I don't have to do this anymore, right? I hope that like we get our stuff together and you know, we don't need conservation biologists. That would be the dream. But. Yeah. And then I'm gonna, we're getting lots more, we have so many questions. Um, more specific questions about uh, bees again. Uh, so we're asking about, so kind of about the queen and um, about speed. Like, yeah, so maybe like average speed that bumblebees can fly. And then someone's also asking about like, what kind of happens if the queen dies? And like, is there a new queen each year for bumblebee species at least? Yeah. Yeah, okay, so I'll do those in reverse order. So there is a new queen for bumblebees every single year. Um, every, at the end of the summer, the queen that made the nest will, will die. And then one of her daughters, the old, the new queens, um, we'll go out and they'll have to like start a new nest in the spring. Um, so every year the queen dies and a new queen will have to like, you know, hibernate for the winter and then start a new nest in a new place in the spring. Um, and uh, what was the second one, sorry? Uh, about speed that they can fly. Speed, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know the answer, but I have a, a colleague who like looks at that, at, like kind of how do bees like fly so well or like what do they like, how do they use their energy to, to be able to fly and stuff? And so I can tell you how they measure it, which is really cool. They cool down the bees until they like are kind of like stunned or like, you know, kind of like sleeping a little bit. And then they tie ropes on the bees and then they put them in basically like a wind chamber kind of, and they just like spin the bee around. It just like flies in circles and they kind of like track like how fast it's flying in a circle. And so it's absolutely hilarious to watch this bee just like on a string, like flying in a circle as fast as it can. Um, so I don't know the numbers, but, um, and I wouldn't really recommend doing that at home, but. Um, yeah. No, that's awesome. Maybe, um, I'm assuming there's some type of video out there. Maybe, uh, hopefully she sure, can yeah. be on a string flying. <laughs> so that's cool. Um, and another fast fact about bees, do you know how many um, colors they can see? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know how many colors they can see, but I know they can't see the color red. Um, so we, there are a few like rooms that 
at University of Ottawa and kind of at different view labs across the world. And they'll use um, red lights. So it'll be like a completely dark room and they'll just use like red lights. And that way they can like check out the bee colonies and they can look at how they're doing, um, but the bees can't see it. And so they'll still like think that it's dark and they won't be like, um, they won't be stressed out or like, you know, trying to see what's up or anything. Gotcha. Cool. Um, and I guess, so I have a quick question before we keep diving into the questions they have. Did you, um, have you always been interested in entomology or like studying insects or is that more of a new thing for your PhD work? Yeah, that was more of a, more of a new thing. I was like always more excited, I guess, about like bigger, like, you know, bigger animals, things like birds. I used to love reptiles. They were my like absolute favorite, you know, amphibians and reptiles, like salamanders and, and lizards and, and all of that. Um, but then when I was like in the last year of my undergrad, I worked for like one summer in the lab that I ended up doing my PhD. In. And um, I was working there as like, I was just catching butterflies for the whole summer. And it was like absolutely the coolest job. We were just running around like SpongeBob catching jellyfish. We would just like have these nets. We were like monitoring about 20 different sites around Ottawa. And, um, and so we would just go out every day and catch butterflies. And, and that was when I like, that was the first time that I had spent like looking for bugs and butterflies. Um, and so like after that moment, it was like everything was changed for me. I started seeing like butterflies everywhere and I started seeing like bees everywhere and all these other bugs. And so it was just like, you know, you can't, it's difficult to like be able to drive out to like, you know, look at bigger animals or like look at birds or anything. But like, insects are always in your backyard like they're always wherever you're going to be and so it was just like really great for me to be able to like do a mini safari like on a 10 minute walk outside of my house like whenever I want um so that's when I got really excited about entomology and about insects and uh, and why I've been doing it since awesome um what butterfly species did you work with and like do you know how long they live and like is that kind of average for butterflies or yeah, that's another great question. Um, so again, I kind of cheated and I was able to work with like a lot of butterfly species because um, we were monitoring, we were looking at like whole communities and, and how numbers of species in a community were changing over time. Um, and so, yeah, we would look at like, I think, I think we ended up catching about like 30 or maybe 40 different species over that summer around Ottawa. Um, and how long do they live? Um, so here in, at least in kind of mostly North America, where we have like summer and winter, um, bees or butterflies only ever live, like, I don't think they live longer than a year. Um, and usually they only last like, at least as, sorry, at least as actual butterflies. So when they're caterpillars and, and pupae, sometimes they'll be able to live like longer than a year because they'll, um, you know, spend like a whole summer as like a caterpillar, for example, and then spend like a winter as a chrysalis. Um, and then spend like another summer as an actual like butterfly as an adult. Um, and so they can kind of live like up to two years maybe or longer sometimes, um, depending on the species. Um, and, but for the most part, yeah, I think, you know, as an adult butterfly, they'll live for like maybe a couple of months, maybe a couple of weeks, but up to like a full year um, or, you know, a full summer. Gotcha. Um, and then talking about, so we have some questions about other types of pollinators besides um, bees and butterflies, people are asking, um, would seed dispersers, like birds, seed dispersers be considered pollinators? Um, and maybe like other species that are considered pollinators that you wouldn't really think 
of bean pollinators? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so would seed dispersers be considered pollinators? I don't think so. I think seed dispersers could be pollinators, but being a seed disperser doesn't make you a pollinator because um, pollinators are kind of the step before um, plants even get seeds. Like to get a seed, um, the plant needs to be pollinated first. And so a pollinator needs to come by and, or for some plants, some plants can be just pollinated by wind and stuff, but for animal pollinated plants, um, they need to have some animal take pollen from one flower, bring it to another flower, and then it'll produce like a fruit and produce a seed. And then a seed disperser, like a bird, will eat it and poop it out, you know, miles away and it'll drop to the floor and make a new plant. Um, so I think a lot of seed dispersers will be pollinators because they'll end up, you know, moving pollen from one of the plant to another just through like what it's doing, but it won't necessarily be a pollinator. Um, and other like, so pollinators that you wouldn't think of, um, so bats I think are the coolest. Bats are like really great pollinators in a lot of the world. In some of the world, I think they're like the biggest pollinators. Um, um, and so I think they're actually like by size, maybe the biggest pollinators, like the flying, the fox bat, or you, there's like a really huge flying fox bat. Um, and like, I think Indonesia um, is like an absolutely massive bat. And I think that's actually the biggest pollinator in the world. I'm not 100% sure, but I think it might be. Um, other pollinators are things like wasps. Wasps, wasps are actually like really great pollinators. Um, they're like really annoying for picnics and stuff and eating your food off of a balcony, but um, they're really great pollinators. Beetles are really great pollinators as well. Um, and a lot of like smaller mammals, I think like um, birds are pollinate, great pollinators, uh, hummingbirds obviously, but yeah, I think those are like the ones that I'm always like, huh, I did not realize that was a pollinator. In one study, sorry, so a bit of a side tangent, but um, my friend was telling me about like, he was trying to map out like all of the pollinators, like figure out what, you know, when, what might be a pollinator. Um, and he read one study where they were asking whether giraffes are pollinators um, because giraffes have like these really long tongues and they like, you know, like stick their faces in like a tree and then they like slurp up all these leaves and stuff. I guess they sometimes get like pollen on their snouts and then when they move to another tree, they'll like move it across. Um, and so giraffes might be pollinators as well. Um, it wasn't 100% sure whether they were doing it on purpose or how well they do it or how often, but they might be pollinators too. That's awesome. Um, and as, so when you mentioned beetles, someone specifically asked, are fireflies pollinators? I'm not too oh, sure. Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know the answer, um, but that's an awesome question. Yeah, I think beetles are usually the ones I forget about um, when I think of pollinators. So yeah, yeah there's probably some kind of uh, literature out there. If whoever, if the people that are interested in fireflies, I'd check it out, that'd be cool. Mm -hmm. um, and so talking about pollen and pollinators, uh, people are asking kind of how are plants dependent or like how and why are plants dependent on pollinators? And like, what are some kind of basic strategies that you know of that um, plants use to kind of lure pollinators over? Yeah, <clears throat> awesome, awesome questions. Um, so basically, any <clears throat> sorry, any plant um, needs to have for it to make a seed and for this or for it to make a fruit and, and a seed, the plant needs to have like um, pollen moved from the female parts of the plant to the male parts of the plant. And ideally, it needs to like have these move from a different plant, so it's not just like the same plant um, reproducing with itself. Um, and so some plants are able to do this like 
just by the wind, things like corn or things like um, a lot of grains and grasses, um, they just kind of like throw up their pollen into the sky and the wind just like takes it and it'll like eventually land on another plant. Hopefully a lot of it will land elsewhere and a lot of it will like will breathe in and it'll cause allergies for us. Um, but this is a strategy, this wind pollination is a strategy that works for a lot of plants. Um, for other plants and especially for like flowering plants, um, the strategy that they use to move this like, you know, pollen from the male part to the female part is they take advantage of animals. And so they'll like, no animal is like purposefully trying to pollinate. None of them want to like, you know, move pollen from the female part to the male part. Um, so the plants have to trick them into doing this. And so the way that they do this usually is by like producing things like nectar, which is like the Red Bull of nature. Um, and so every animal really wants to like get amped up on Red Bull. It's like really high in sugar. It's like really great, like, you know, um, and so they like, you know, seek out this nectar and then the plants design themselves in a way so that when an animal is like sipping the nectar, when it's like sticking its head in the flower to like lap up the nectar with its tongue, um, the plants kind of have, you know, have evolved in a way that like pollen will like usually fall on this animal and then it'll be moved over when the animal goes to another plant to get more nectar, um, it'll end up transferring this pollen as it moves from plant to plant. Um, and so that's like the strategy that, you know, a lot of these animal pollinated plants take um, to transfer pollen. And it's obviously much more efficient than just like throwing pollen into the sky and, and letting it find its way. Um, and so, yeah, so a lot of plants like have really like ingenious and really like manipulative strategies as well. Some like orchids, for example, they kind of like make it so that the animal, like the bee or whichever has to like crawl inside the flower. And then as it crawls in the flower, it'll be like tagged, like the, a part of the plant will like swing down or like swing up and it'll like stick like a piece of pollen, like a whole like parcel almost on this plant, on this bee. And then when the bee like crawls out the other side of the flower, when it crawls back, then it's like all of a sudden tagged with like this like little backpack of pollen that it will bring like to another flower. Um, a lot of plants like their flowers are shaped in a way that it looks like an insect. Um, and so it'll look like a female bee or it'll look like a beetle and so one of these like insects will like come across this and they'll be like oh hey like you know I'd like to like mate and reproduce and they'll start like trying to reproduce with this plant which obviously doesn't go very well um, but while they're doing that the plant like again like kind of sticks pollen onto it or like pollen rubs off of the plant um, and then it'll go and try to do the same thing to another plant and it'll have moved that pollen from one plant to another um, so plants are like really devious with how they like you know, have evolved and how they've like uh, evolved to uh, to trick animals into transferring this pollen. Yeah, no, that's super smart. And um, like a visual I just got when you're talking about the plant kind of putting the pollen on their back is uh, from Monsters Inc. When that guy has like the sock on, <laughs> I was like picturing like a little pollen sticker. <laughs> um, that's really, yeah, that's really cool. Uh, and uh, another question that we were getting kind of like when you're talking about your research and how you kind of go out with these nets and catch um, insects, what are some other kinds of like equipment that you use in your research? Um, yeah. yeah, great question. Um, so nets, when we're catching butterflies, the nets are what we use most of the time. Um, but also like um, most of the time, you when you get good enough, you can start to identify butterflies just by like seeing them. And so things like binoculars become like really useful because instead of like 
having to run over and try to catch the butterfly, which often you just look like a fool because you're like swinging at a butterfly. They're really good at not getting caught. Um, and so instead you can just kind of check through the binoculars, get a closer look and identify what it is. Um, so that's a good one. For bees, actually for bumblebees, bumblebees are so like, you know, kind of slow and like gentle that like the first time I went out to catch them, I was like ready to like start swinging with a net. And the person with me was like, whoa, whoa, whoa hold up. Like, that's not how we do it here. And they like took out like this little, like a little jar or like a little kind of like, like you would put like beads or something in for sewing. Um, and they just like walked up to the bee really gently, really slowly. And they just like caught the bee inside of this little jar. Um, and there were like air holes inside of it. Um, and it was like, I was like, oh, wow, like you can just, you can just do that, I guess. Like, um, so jars, like sewing, little sewing jars, we have like a box of those in the lab. Um, and people are always like, what do you do with these? But, um, but yeah, that's what we use for catching them. Um, when it comes to being in the lab, um, we use microscopes a lot of the time. Some of these animals, especially bees, like you need to get a, like a really close look and you need to look at like really specific features on them, on their legs or on their, uh, on their genitalia to figure out like, you know, is it male or female or like what species it is specifically. Um, so microscopes come in a lot of handy there. Um, a lot of that kind of sums up what I use for my research, but other people in the lab, like one person last summer, um, she was like really ingenious. She wanted to look at how things like birds and stuff were preying on butterflies. And so she built, she used like little plasticine models of like caterpillars um, that she made herself. And then she like used like cardboard butterfly wings and she like stuck them on these caterpillars. And then she like just used like, it was like a craft basically. She was like spending a lot of time cutting out these like butterfly wings out of cardboard and then like laminating them or like putting a, a waxy surface on them. And then she would just leave them outside for 24 hours and come back and see how many were bitten by like birds or how many were like, looked like they were damaged and stuff. Um, so it ends up being, that's the cool thing about science, I think, is that people think it's like all of these really insane instruments. And sometimes it is, but a lot of the times in ecology, you're using like duct tape and paper clips to like hold together a whole experiment or all these like really bootleg materials. Um, there's a lot of creativity involved. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Um, and I think, so we still have a lot of questions. I don't think we'll be able to get to all of them today. Um, but one more question until we kind of go into the Skype the Scientist questions. Um, is there, besides like a medical doctor, is there other types of science, like another type of a scientist that you saw yourself as growing up that kind of as you narrowed down to ecologist um, you used to consider? Um, that's a good question. Huh. I have to think about that. Um, I guess like, I always liked the idea of being an astronaut. Um, mostly because I like really, I think it'd be so cool to be in space and like be able to go to another planet and stuff. Um, so I thought about being kind of like, you know, um, uh, kind of a, an astronaut or like a, a xenobiologist or something where you're looking at like life on other planets and stuff. Um, but I think um, the big thing that I, yeah, I think mostly it was just kind of, uh, I knew I was like really interested in science and I knew I was like, when I was a kid, I really wanted to just be like like Steve Irwin or something and just like run around and catch animals. But um, yeah, I think the big ones that I had really considered kind of seriously were like a medical doctor and then eventually like a, um, a researcher or a conservation biologist. Very cool. Well, yeah, thank you. Um, and thanks everyone for all the awesome questions. I'm sorry we can't answer them all. Um, hopefully you can, yeah, 
go look up some cool videos about pollinators and how climate change is impacting them and um, maybe check out uh, your work, Peter, online. That would be really cool. Yeah, and feel free um, if you guys want to track me down on, on Twitter or Instagram, then, you know, shoot me some questions there. If I, if you, if I wasn't able to answer your question, then feel free to ask away. Awesome, thank you. Um, and then, so for Skype the Scientist live stream stuff, we always have our last couple of questions to kind of wrap up the session with. Um, so the first question we have is like, is there one thing that you wish you were asked about today? Oh, um, that's a great question. Uh, I think you guys are so amazing at like asking all of these like really great questions. Um, but nothing is really coming to mind. But I guess the one question I wish I was asked was, um, what my uh, favorite album was. Um, I, I love like uh, I love like hip hop and rap and, and R and B, um, and I love to talk about that as well. So, I it has absolutely nothing to do with pollinators or or uh, anything. But um, yeah, I wish that was a question that was asked today. Now you have to you have to share. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. I think so. To be fair, that does change a lot. But I think the one album that I'm like really listening to a lot now is the uh, To Pimple Butterfly by Kendrick Lamar. Mm -hmm. um, and it also has the bonus of being kind of insect themed uh, in the title at least. So um, yeah, at the moment, that is my favorite one. Awesome, yeah, I like that one too. <laughs> um, and then the second question, uh, is there a fun fact about pollinators and um, the impact of climate change on them that you want to share? Like something you could kind of transmit to everyone, what would you share? Yeah, I guess, uh, yeah, okay, yeah. The big one is that like, I guess a lot of the time people think it's all like doom and gloom and it's all kind of sad, but I think the message that I want to transmit is that it's like actually really hopeful and really exciting. Um, and it's true like pollinators like bees and butterflies are like being really impacted by climate change and they're in decline in a lot of the world like really badly but you know there are a lot of like really passionate people who like are working to like solve this and and fix it and of course like if you're listening obviously you probably care a lot too and so there are a lot of things that you can do to like help save the bees and save the butterflies um things like planting natural kind of pollinator habitat in your yard or like keeping leaves on the ground keeping logs on the ground um, things like contributing to community science, like iNaturalist. Um, every observation on iNaturalist like eventually goes in this like data bank that other scientists can use to like figure out what's happening to animals and, and how can we help them. And so when you're contributing to programs like that, you're literally like helping save the world. Um, so it's, yeah, I guess that's the, the question, I, the thing I'd like to transmit is that there's a lot of hope. And I do think that someday I won't have to be a conservation biologist and I can just chill and look at bugs for fun. That sounds awesome. <laughs> and yeah, I, I totally agree. I recommend download iNaturalist. Um, there's just like, it's really cool. You can just look, zoom into your area and see where all these organisms are located. Like I, yeah, I use it to find sea urchins on the California coast. It's amazing. Um, and then our last question is, so it's super broad. Is there a fun fact that you would like to share about anything? kind of wrap up oh. about anything. anything oh man um a nature fact it's completely open it can be anything you want to share <laughs> oh man this is so much uh oh man okay what was the oh 
putting me on the spot. Okay. Um, yes, there definitely is uh, a fact that I would like to share. Um, I think that, uh, what am I thinking? Okay, yeah, actually, so one of the coolest facts that I learned recently was that hyenas in the, um, like in the savannas of, uh, of Africa and whatnot, um, when they eat food, like they eat like a whole bunch of meat all at one time and their stomach acid, they're like so powerful to digest it that their stomach like heats up and it gets like so hot that the hyenas have to like, sometimes they like really have to go into water and like cool their body down by being in the water because their stomach's getting so hot from all these like digestive acids, like digesting this food. Um, and I thought that was absolutely mind blowing that like hyenas will just like absolutely gorge themselves and then like chill in the water um, with their like fat bellies, like cooling down. <laughs> Yeah, I already knew I liked hyenas, but that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, pretty awesome. Um, well, yeah, cool. Thank you. Um, thank you for being on today and talking with us. And we had, like, thanks everyone for having such cool questions. Um, I hope that you can either search the last couple questions y'all had on online or maybe reach out to Peter uh, since you're, that's really great that you're available to do that. Um, and thanks also, Aaron, for being on with us today. Really appreciate you being here. Um, and yeah, yeah, I hope everyone has a great uh, rest of your day. And thanks again, Peter. That was awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Um, you're a terrific moderator. Thank you so much, Aaron. Um, and thank you so much, everyone, for watching and asking all these like really dope questions. Uh, you can find me on, on Twitter at Peter Chaurier, um, P-E-T-E-R-S-O-R-O-Y-E, um, or on Instagram as Puffy Peak, um, or on Facebook if you want, or you can email me at peter.chaurier at gmail. Ask me your questions, fire away. Um, and I'd love to come back and do this again sometime. Oh, yes, we would love that. Definitely reach out to Sarah, um, the organizer of all of this stuff. And she would, yeah, it would be awesome. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. See you, everyone.